Good morning. Happy Lord's Day. It's good to see you guys this morning. Um, open your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because man must not live on bread alone, according to Jesus. But um, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So let's turn to 2 Thessalonians 2 to live on these words. And these words are more confusing words, maybe debated words, um, because it's talking about the future. But Jesus intends for us, God intends for us, to live on these words inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Hear God's word. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this? And you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining him will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every kind of every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they, do not, they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray that as we meditate on these important words to live on, words about our time, words about the future, words about the past with the Thessalonians and Paul. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us, that you would give us fresh guidance for our lives this week, but also even uh, more so in this generation, for our lifetime. That these words would be a guiding light, that they would prompt us to joy and holiness and faithfulness. Help us to stand firm by your grace. May your spirit guide us now. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Guard us from distractions as we watch this, most of us on video, almost all of us on video. We pray, Lord, that you would um, do a mighty work in us, not because this is an ideal communication medium, but because you are all-powerful and you love us and you have ordained and predestined this Sunday for us to hear these words wherever we are scattered as Bethany Baptist Church. So work in us, Lord, as a church and as individuals now. In Jesus' name, amen. Seven things to prepare for the end of the world, according to one website. What are the seven things you need to prepare for the end of the world? Here's what they listed. Water, food, shelter, safety. That feels like that would just be a general category. Cash, power alternatives, when the electricity goes out, and long-distance communication options. There, if you want to prepare for the end of the world, just use that checklist, that might help you. But um, more than that, if we're as Christians, we just said we don't live on bread alone or on these seven tips alone in terms of how we live our lives, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What we need to prepare for the end of the world is information. Having the right information, having accurate information, having the truth is crucial for react, reacting to the situations we find ourselves in. So um, when you found out a few years ago, some of you heard that Ebo there was an Ebola outbreak, even from Los Angeles, you hear about an Ebola outbreak on, in another continent. 
You hear about that, and what was your reaction? Uh, it's not too close yet. It's pretty far away. And so you didn't panic because of the information you had. You didn't hear that you know, several people in Los Angeles had Ebola. So you got the information. You heard the information. But um, what, that, what information you received caused you to react in a certain way. And that happens with all kinds of things. When people tell you a hurricane is going to hit the city in a few days, as most hap happened this week to some of our American neighbors in Louisiana, that can raise your alarm and concern when you get the right information. Another example would be COVID-19. Now, there's all kinds of different responses to COVID-19, but a lot of people are reacting to whatever information they get. And if you get the right information and the right interpretation of the information, you could respond rightly. But the point is everyone is responding in some way to all the information from all kinds of sides of what is what's actually going on in our day. So some of us have deep concern about COVID still, and others of us are just straight up indifference, indifferent to, to COVID, and they're, they're over it in some ways. I don't want to turn this into commentary on politics of our day, but even, even the information that's given from the Democratic National Convention two or three weeks ago now, and then the Republican National Convention last week, uh, you get different information, and the, the goal is to cause the American voters to react according to the information, to be troubled by the other side, perhaps, and to figure out what is the truth so that you could react accordingly. The point here is that we don't just need food and water and safety. We need the right information so that we can respond rightly. So we need crucial information, and God has crucial information for us about the end of the world so that we won't end up being ruined. So the fear for me is if God has given us information in the Bible or crucial information that we need for our lives, what if we miss out on the information or we misunderstand the information? It's important for us to get the information and to grasp the information. And so that's what we want to do here from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Here's the main goal. The main goal is this. Stand firm in the teaching of future events. That's it. Stand firm in the teaching of future events. I have a purpose statement, but that's just more from two weeks ago in our sermon. Stand firm in the teaching of future events so that Christ is glorified in you and you in him. So that God is glorified. You could say that at the end. But the point here that we want to focus on is not the result of it, Christ being glorified, but what God is calling us to do, what Christ is calling us to do, which is to stand firm in the teaching of future events, to stand firm in our generation. Like Christians in the past, Christians in the future, those who we disciple who are, who are going to leave behind us, we want them to stand firm in the teaching of future events. So look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. So there's a topic. Jesus Christ coming back. Those who are Christian being gathered to Christ. Paul talked about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 17 when Christ comes in the air and his saints meet him in the air. So regarding the this, this second coming of Jesus, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. So where's the command? You guys see that in verse, uh, verse 2, the request is, don't be easily upset or troubled. And then verse 3, you have another command. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. So don't be troubled and don't be tricked. Don't be troubled by fake letters, fake prophecies, fake Christian leaders, fake pastors, fake messengers, fake letters that are supposedly from the Apostle Paul. Don't be tricked by a lot of fake information that goes under the guise of Christianity or evangelicalism or biblical thinking or right theology or pastoral faithfulness or ministry of Bethany Baptist Church or the Southern Baptist Convention or whatever denomination you're part of. Don't be tricked. And don't be troubled by false information, by lies, by misinformation and misunderstandings. Now, I'm going to give you Paul's main point, which is not the main goal of our message. And we, you know here, expository preaching is when the, the words and goal of the text controls the words and goal of the sermon. And I think I'm going to do that, but this is a little bit trickier. But so let me tell you what Paul's trying to do. Paul's main goal is... Thessalonians, don't be troubled or tricked as if, the, as if the second coming has already happened. And he gives them three reasons why they shouldn't be tricked or troubled. And this is going to form the outline, though it's not the same points that I'm going to make, okay? Paul's three reasons 
that they shouldn't be troubled or tricked is, one, because certain things have to happen first. The apostasy and the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. Secondly, the second reason why they should not be troubled or tricked is because Paul already told them about these things continually. That's verse 5. And then thirdly, the third reason why they should not be troubled or tricked is because the restrainer is still here. And he's still restraining the man of lawlessness. And they know that, so they should not be troubled or tricked. So that's Paul's reason for them. Now, the reason why this is not the main goal for us is because as I look at you here on Zoom, or those who are here, or those I'm going to see tonight, when I look at Bethany Baptist Church, or I'm praying through the membership directory, we have 105 members. I don't know any member who's thinking, oh no, the second coming has already come. Like, and they're, they're troubled by the fact that the second coming has come. This church was troubled by that. So Paul's writing to that need. Our church doesn't have that need. There's no one here who's tricked or thinking, I missed the second coming, or we missed the second coming. So how do we apply this passage to us when we don't have, have that problem? What I'm, here's what I'm going to do. Those three reasons to not be troubled, those are all true, but we're going to take those three reasons, and we're going to use those as three truths to help us stand firm as the church in our generation. Okay? So that's why my goal is standing firm and not, not, not being troubled. Okay? That's why it's, it's standing firm, because that's the main goal of the whole, the whole book. So... Three truths to help us stand firm as the church in our generation. Because Christians, professing Christians, are not standing firm, and some are falling. And some churches are not standing firm in our generation. And we can only live our generation. We can't live the future generations. We can't live the past generations. BBC, right now is your time. Right now is your life, your generation. You are called to stand firm in your generation. Okay? So we're going to take these three reasons of Paul and make them three truths to guide us to stand firm in our generation. As we await his coming. So for us, for Paul and the Thessalonians, their problem was being troubled or tricked. That it already came. For us, here's how it's going to guide us. Our problem about the second coming is not that we think it already came. Our problem is either ignorance or indifference. Ignorance or indifference. Ignorance being that we don't understand the second coming. And we're unaware of what the basic Bible teaching is of the second coming. I wonder if I asked you... What's the basic Bible teaching about the end times, about the second coming? Just give me a basic outline, a basic thing of the future events. How many of our 105 members would be able to just lay out the basics about what's going to happen in the future? Are you guys confident that you could do it? No? No? Sort of? Okay. Well, I'm going to give you a basic uh, thing in a second. Okay. But that's one, one problem for our church and our generation is ignorance of the events. Paul expects them to know it. The second problem for us today is indifference. We know Jesus is coming. We know the end is going to come and there's going to be these great troubles at the end. But we're like, ah, COVID is a bigger deal. Or the presidential election is a bigger deal. Or the things going on at my work is a bigger deal. Or the trouble with my family is a bigger problem. Or my financial problems are a bigger pressure. And I'm not saying those are not pressures that we should feel. We should feel them. But we should feel them in proper proportion to reality. And the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end times is a huge reality. It really should shape all of our lives. And all of our moments of our day. And so our problem is not thinking the second coming has come. It's ignorance of the information or indifference to knowing Christ is coming, but it making no, having no impact in our lives. All right? So let's, look, let's think about these three truths so that we could let this truth um, of Christ coming impact our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with our neighbors, our relationship to the nations. So here's truth number one, verses three and four. So we covered one through three in terms of the problem that Paul's after. Now let's go to these three truths. Truth number one in verses three and four. Truth one is Jesus comes after. Jesus comes after. Look at verse three. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So Jesus does not come there is no gathering back to Christ until two things. What are they? Did you guys see it there? What are they? Two things have to come first. The apostasy, the apostasy or rebellion and the man, the man of lawlessness. Until those two, Jesus comes after the apostasy. Jesus comes after the man of lawlessness is revealed and not before. That's the first truth. After the apostasy. What is the apostasy? 
It can also be translated, translated the rebellion. Jesus comes after the rebellion. Who's rebelling here? Who is, apostasy means falling away. Who is falling away and who is rebelling? Some people say, oh, it's this great movement of Christians who are going to be falling away and rebelling. Others say it's the Jewish state that's going to fall away and rebel. Others just say it's general humanity. A large swath of humanity is going to fall away and rebel against God. And that's going to be the great apostasy. I think the answer, I think a lot of Second Thessalonians, is leaning on Matthew 24. So if you go to Matthew 24 in Jesus' words, turn there, I'm going to read a chunk. You could turn there to Matthew 24, verse 4, or you could listen. But here, I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read 11 verses, 24, verses 4 to 14, to give you Jesus' picture of what I think is in line with, and maybe Paul might even be drawing from, for his teaching. Matthew 24, verse 4. Jesus replied to them, to his disciples, Watch out that no one deceives you. Sound familiar? For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. Then, and he's talking to his 12 disciples, keep this in mind, 12 apostles. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all the nations because of my name. Then many will fall away. There's the apostasy, I think, or the, the rebellion. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will what? grow cold, or as the King James Version says, the love of many will wax cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all the ethnic people groups. And then, then what? Then the end will come. So you have here a picture of the apostasy, and it's not the Jewish state. It's not really just the rest of humanity. I think it's all of it, but it includes professing Christians, right? Jesus is telling the apostles, you don't be deceived. They're going to take some of you away and, and the love of many will grow cold. So it's not just, some people look at it as like a great apostasy in the church. I think it includes the church. I don't think it's only the church, but I think it's among churches as well that are going to be falling away in this time. And, and this has happened throughout the centuries, right? And so um, it's not that Paul is saying that it's just the general uh, debates and false teaching that rises up in every generation. That's, that is apostatizing. But, but Paul seems to be referring to the apostasy. So like a greater measure, a final apostasy, a larger measure of deception inside the church, outside the church, around the world that's going to happen at the end. Okay? So that needs to happen first, that this great apostasy, and it could be in our generation. I mean... The thing is, apostasy happens in every generation that when the final one is, we're not sure when the final one is because it's happening, but it's going to be in greater measure. But we're in one part of the world. We don't really have a good sense of the whole world um, as we think about this final rebellion and apostasy. But that has to happen. Jesus comes after the apostasy. But Jesus also comes after something else in verse 3 of, of the Second Thessalonians. The man of lawlessness. The, um, that day will not come until... The apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. So the man of lawlessness must be revealed first. Who is the man of lawlessness? Or let's describe him from these verses. He is lawless. That's not too profound, but that's, he's lawless. He doesn't obey the law of God. He doesn't keep to the law of God. He rejects the law of God. He is lawless. He disregards God's law. He undermines God's law. He twists God's law for his own advantage and self-exaltation. He is, notice here, he is doomed to destruction, or he's the son of destruction. He is going to lose. He is about destruction. He brings about destruction, but he will be destroyed in the end. As we read in verse 8, I'll pull it out now because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a parenthesis in verse 8. When Jesus comes, it says in verse 8, the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. He will be destroyed by Jesus. So he's the son of destruction. Look at verse 4. Let's get more descriptions of him. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he opposes other religions. He opposes every so-called God or object of worship. He exalts himself 
in that way as someone to be worshipped and exalted and to be adored and venerated. That's what he's about. So that he, he exalts himself so much that, so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Okay, we have another problem here, and I'm just going to be brief on these problems because there's a lot of problems in this text, or at least confusions. What is the temple? Is it the temple in Jerusalem? Paul wrote this before the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. Um, it's been destroyed ever since. Now you have a, a, one of the Dome of the Rock there, the mosque right there in the Temple Mount. So is Paul talking about that temple in Jerusalem? But if you read Paul and all of his letters, we know that Paul talks about the temple often as who? The church, right? That we are the temple of God. So maybe it's talking about this man of lawlessness exalting himself in the church or among the churches, among professing Christians. That could be true. The point here is that we're not sure if the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Is it going to be in the church in our generation or in some generation soon before the temple is rebuilt? If the temple is ever rebuilt, that's possible. The point is we don't know exactly what the temple is, but the point here is that he's going to exalt himself in the place of God's worship whether an actual temple or whether within the church or some other um, allusion to the temple or some other symbolism of the temple, he's going to lift himself up and exalt himself. Now, who is he? Who is the Antichrist? Some people thought in the first century it was Nero, the Roman emperor, or Caligula, or other, other emperors in the Roman Empire who would bring great persecution to the church or to the Jews and exalt themselves as God. But clearly Jesus didn't come yet, so maybe not. Later on in church history, some people thought it was the prophet Muhammad of Islam. They thought he was the Antichrist. Later on, right before the Reformation, and during the Reformation, actually, the Protestant Reformation, who, do you guys know who they thought the Antichrist was during the Protestant Reformation? The Pope. They thought the Roman Catholic Pope was the Antichrist. He was, had large control of the world at the time. A lot of governments were looking to him and preaching a false anti-gospel. Um, denying the authority of scripture and justification by faith alone eventually during the Reformation and persecuting other Protestants that some thought he is the Antichrist. But Jesus is not here yet. Some people thought Hitler was the Antichrist. Some people might think a particular presidential candidate from either party is the Antichrist. You know, um, there's just, there's all these different theories about who the Antichrist is. What are we to make of all these churches thinking, hey, there's the Antichrist in different generations? Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 with me. Keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians, but go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. First John 2, 18. It says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So is he here yet or not here yet? He says the Antichrist is coming. He's not here yet. Even now, what does he say next? Many Antichrists have what? Have come. Okay? By this we know it's the last hour. So has the Antichrist come? At least during John's time? No, he's coming. But at the same time, who has come? Many what? Many Antichrists. So you can think of it as, there are many antichrists. I would say there are many people who are antichrist, anti-Christian, anti-gospel. And Christ means Messiah, anti-Messiah. In different, in generations, there's a lot of people who are antichrist to differing levels of influence. But in the end, there will be a capital A antichrist, the final man of lawlessness. So in one sense, I don't even think the church, churches were wrong in church history. And even in our generation, to point out people who have... Um, the, the living, the influence, the direction, the impact of an antichrist figure. There are many antichrists. And in the end, there will be the antichrist who comes. Okay? But Paul's point is, don't be alarmed. He hasn't come yet. The antichrist hasn't come yet. Okay? If you want to read more, I don't have time now, and I would just love to dig into it. Revelation 13, 1 through 10, you have a description of the Antichrist. And even then, in verse 1, you have, a, you have the, an imagery of how many Antichrists will come before the final Antichrist as well. In Revelation 13, 1, about the horn, or the, the fatal wound that's healed. The point here for Paul, going back to 2 Thessalonians, is don't be alarmed as if, the as if, as if Christ has already come. I don't think I've ever said from the pulpit my story, my rapture story. Have you guys heard my rapture story? Um, I think it illustrates the point here, so I'll, I'll say it now. Um, when I was 11 years old, 
Um, I grew up with a lot of Rapture movies and Rapture scares and things like that. Have you grown up in that way too? Um, so when I was 11 years old, maybe 12 years old, I, I always thought Jesus was coming back on a Sunday. My pastor would say that, and so I always thought, we don't know what Sunday, but most like you know, he most likely come back on a Sunday, which I don't know. I don't think is true, but anyways. So Sunday morning, I wake up um, to get ready for the church gathering, and I go to my parents' room, and nobody's there, but the lights are all on. Then I go downstairs to, um, and I see an ironing board out, and the iron there, and nobody's there, and the TV's on. And I'm thinking, what's going on? And then I start going to every room and nobody's anywhere. And then I start freaking out. I'm like, oh no, the rapture happened. Jesus came and I missed it. And so I go to my older brother's room and my older brother would always sleep in. And I, would, I, started, I started knocking on his door calmly at first. No, no answer, no answer. And I start banging as hard as I can, banging on his door. Like, Garcy, wake up! You know, I'm like just screaming at him and um, nothing. And I'm like, and like then, then full on panic mode. I'm like, oh no, I've been left behind. So I'm like, I'm starting running throughout the house frantically. I go to the garage. I see the garage is open, but there's no car. So the, one of the cars is missing. So that, you know, I see that, but I'm, I'm already in full panic mode. I start running down my street, crying and screaming. Like down the street, like, oh, I'm screaming. Um, the, the rapture happened, the rapture happened, oh no. So I'm screaming, running down the street, five houses down to my neighbor's house, uh, and they're Roman Catholic. I start banging on their door, and I'm like freaking out, and they open the door, I'm like, what's wrong, Peach? I'm like, the rapture happened, Jesus came, we've been left behind, we've been left behind, and I'm freaking out, and they're trying to calm me down. I'm like, no, don't, don't do this. You're gonna be, you know, I think they're going to betray me and hand me over to the authorities, and they're like, calm down. And I'm like, no, I won't calm down. Jesus came, we missed it. You know, uh, We're in the tribulation now. And while I'm screaming at them and, and freaking out, like my mom drives by. And then she, she pulls up into the garage. And I'm like, okay, bye. <laughs> and I just run back home to my, my mom and I get angry. I, I, I kind of shout at her, like, mom, what are you doing? Why do you leave everything on? And my brother wakes up later, like, what's going on? I'm like, what? You're in your room the whole time. Like, why didn't you get up? And so, anyways, I was alarmed and troubled that I had missed the second coming. And um, it, you know, that's. Don't scare your kids. Maybe that's an application of parents. Don't scare your kids with rapture stories. At the same time, you need to be informed of what needs to happen first before the second coming so that you're not troubled. But that's not, again, I, I don't think that's the main application for us today, um, at least in our church family with what we're going on. I want to I focus here on, um, I want to focus here on how we should be informed. So let's, let's think, let's understand the apostasy. So understand that. That has to come. Understand that the Antichrist, final Antichrist, will have to come. You have to be informed. Not only do you need to be informed, we need to not be alarmed. And, uh, and then I think we also need to fight apathy. Don't be apathetic about the second coming. Don't be worried about it, but don't be indifferent either. REM has the famous doomsday song, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine as if it's just not a big deal. And that should not be the Christian. I mean, we should feel a sense of trust in God, but we shouldn't just feel like it's not a big deal. Let's anticipate the second coming. Okay, so the point here, and the good news is, God doesn't keep us guessing about the future. God reveals the future to us. Not very specifically, but the major events. Okay, so stand firm in the teaching of future events so we could stand firm in our generation. So truth number one, Jesus comes after. Truth number two, and this one's shorter, okay? Point two is a short point. Point three is a longer point again. Point two, God speaks to his people. God speaks to you, or you could say God speaks to you through teachers and through the Bible. God speaks to you through teachers and through the Bible. Look at chapter two, verse five. Just one verse for this one. Don't you remember, Paul says, this is a second reason why they should not be alarmed. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this? Now, he doesn't say... I like how the English is here because it's not bringing out the, the Greek. I mean, the, it does bring out the Greek. He doesn't say, don't you remember I told you about this? If I said I told you about this, you might think I told you one time, right? But he says, don't you remember I used to tell you about this? It's bringing out the idea that I just told you one time. We used to talk about this often. Now, Paul was with the Thessalonians for only three Saturdays, three Sabbaths. So the most he could have been with them was about 27 days, right? Not, not quite four Sabbaths. 
So 27 days or so, Paul was with them, not more than 35 days, Paul being with the Thessalonians. And so he was teaching them the Bible, teaching them Jesus, teaching them the gospel, how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And in all of that, Paul used to tell them about the apostasy. He used to tell them about the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. It was not something that, oh, let's be gospel-centered and let's not talk about the end. Paul talked about it regularly. He expected them to know it, to remember what he said. Because he trusted that God spoke through him to tell them what was going to happen in the future. Paul taught them these things regularly. And at BBC, don't we teach each other regularly? We read, we read the Bible with one another, but let's just talk, start with what we do on Sundays. Sunday morning, we have a sermon like this where we spend a lot of time listening to a message. On Sunday night, we have another message that's 15 to 20 minutes on the Bible. Tuesday morning, we have a divinity class that all members are invited to. Friday morning, we have Bible reading on Zoom that all members are invited to. We have city groups that get together to speak the Bible to each other. Many of you read the Bible with other members of this church. There are emails that go out. We share videos. There's a confession of faith that has our basic Christian teaching. We have a church covenant, which teaches us how to live. We have a sermon archive of all of the sermons of BBC that are online. We have questions and answers where we ask people and you guys email me different Bible questions and I answer those. We have other resources like we have books. We have a book stall. We recommend books. We recommend videos. We recommend audio. We recommend other Bible teachers. There's other ministries, other websites. We can just go on and on and on about all of this Bible teaching that God is speaking to us through our church, through our own Bible reading and through other people. There's so much that God says to us. Just like Paul said to them, didn't I tell, don't I tell you about these things? And God says to us as Christians, haven't I told you about these things? Don't I talk to you regularly? Don't I make myself available to you? And don't I make my truth available to you through so many means in your life all the time? You have Bibles on your phones? So we should know about the end times. So let me give you an overview. If you're not confident about the end times, let me give you an overview. And it's going to be very basic, okay? This is what, now, there's a lot of debates about other things. I'll give you the most basic that everyone agrees on, and I'll give you a second way of doing it with my little bit more on the debated side, just a little bit. So here's what everyone should know. That there is lawlessness now, which we're going to talk about in a second. That the lawless one will come at the end with a great apostasy, okay? Which is what we just covered. You should all know that. Every Christian should know that. There's lawlessness now. There's a lawless one who's going to come and a great apostasy at the end. Jesus will come and kill him. And gather us to him. And then there will be a final great white throne judgment. And then there will be a new heavens and new earth where we're going to reign forever. And there will be a lake of fire where people are under everlasting punishment forever. Everlasting punishment is forever. That's the basic. You guys got that? So that's, that's basic. Every Christian, every member of our church, if you're a Christian, you should know these things. I'll say it one more time. Lawlessness is happening now. There will come a great apostasy and the lawless one. Okay? The, the man of lawlessness. Then Jesus will come and kill him and gather his people together in that coming. Then there will be a great white throne judgment. After the final judgment, all our works are going to be weighed. God's people, Christ's people, will live with him on the new earth forever. And those who are apart from Jesus will be in, thrown in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. In their resurrected bodies to, to perish and our resurrected bodies to reign forever. That's the basic structure. Every Christian, not if you're like a Christian for one day, but every Christian who's been a Christian for more than three weeks should know that. It's a basic hope that we have to live for. Now, if I had to add a little bit more, I might say, um, after Jesus comes and kills the lawless one and gathers us, we will reign on the earth for a thousand years while Satan is bound. Satan will come for one final rebellion after that, and then the great white throne judgment. That would be my little, so I'm premillennial, not pre-tribulational, but premillennial. I might throw that in there, but that's not what every Christian should know. That's debated. Everything else I told you, though, you should know that basic reality. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to be a teacher. You just need to be a Christian who's read the Bible for a little bit and been taught well to know those basics. So maybe it's my fault more than your fault that you can't say it. It's my job to equip you. So there it is. There's my equipping of that. And Paul says, I told you about these things. So here I am, here I am telling you about these things. God is giving you information you're being told truth regularly. God's speaking to us today on the authority of the inerrant Bible. So here's the question. Are you listening? If God is speaking, if God is providing information for you, 
Are you listening? Are you learning? Are you retaining and reminding yourself of what you hear? Are you reviewing what you've learned? Are you learning? Are you trying to live out the directions God's Spirit is prompting you in from the Bible? Or are you just gathering information? God is speaking. We need to be heeding his word. Paul expected them to remember and live in light of what he told them. God uses your pastor theologians and your fellow member theologians and other teacher theologians to tell you his truth. So brothers and sisters, very simply, kill distractions in your life that are distracting you from learning and holding on to God's word. Lock in, listen, focus when God speaks to you. Because the good news is that God is not silent. God talks to us. So stand firm in the teaching of future events as a church in this generation. Three truths. Truth number one, Jesus comes after. Truth number two, God speaks. Truth number three, lawlessness is working now. Lawlessness works now. Okay? Lawlessness works now. And this is verses 6 through 12. Look at verse 6 with me. As we think about lawlessness working now. And you know, okay, and Paul just expects them to know, and you guys know, Thessalonians, you know what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. So Paul says, there's something you know what currently restrains the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And... Um, and the Antichrist will be revealed in his time, at the right time, but until that time, he's being what? Restrained. So who, what is this restrainer? If you go to verse 7, it says, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. So in verse 6, it says what currently restrains him. So the restraining force is a what. And in verse 7, the restraining force is a he. So is the restraining force a he, a person, or is it a thing? Well, the Bible gives us both in verses 6 and 7. So this has led to endless controversy about who or what the restraining force is. Let me tell you some options. I'm going to, I'm going to give you five options, but let me just tell you this before I do. It's not that important. I mean, it's not that important in the sense like it doesn't change the application. It is some, it's somewhat important. But, and here's the other thing. For Paul, he says, you guys know. So we're debating now five different views. Guess what? For them, there was no debate. They knew the one view. But Paul doesn't tell us. He's like, you guys already know it. I don't even need to repeat it. You're like, oh, come on, Paul. Just say it. You know, we're going to read it later. Like, no, but Paul's just, you guys already know. So that being said, here are five short, um, just a sketch of, of five different views. One is Satan. Satan is restraining the man of lawlessness. That could make a little bit of sense because it says until he's revealed in his time. So maybe it's Satan's timing. That's going behind, so he's restraining. Uh, that makes some sense, but it seems unlikely to me. The second view is the government, the government that restrains evil. And by the way, these next few, I have favorite pastors, theologians, who, who have all these views. I'm like, dude, everyone's d d d divided on this. So one, one of my favorite, uh, this is John Stott, he'll say, the government restrains evil. And that's possible because the government is a restraint on evil, it says in Romans 13. That's why we're to obey the government and they wield the sword to restrain evil. So that view is, the government is still holding down law and order until the, the man of lawlessness comes, and then that, um, that law that restrains evil is going to be taken away, and the restraint will have, I mean, not the restraint, the Antichrist will have full reign at that point. That sort of makes sense to me, but I think the man of lawlessness might actually work through the government. So I, I understand the point of John Stott and others that it could be the government, but I think what they mean by that is really the morals of the culture than the, the government itself, because governments can be corrupt. So I think the government, or the Roman Empire, or the government as the restrainer, I don't, I don't think that fits personally, but it could be that. A third view is Paul and the gospel preaching. So some people say it's the gospel preaching and Paul. Paul is the restrainer, because he's the apostles moving around and sharing the gospel, and once the gospel preaching stops, and Paul stops, then, um, then the restrainer will be out of the way, and the Antichrist will come. The problem with that is that the Thessalonians wouldn't have been troubled because Paul's still around. It's like, how has Paul been removed 
out of the way for the restrainer. That, so that one doesn't make too much sense to me. And then uh, a fourth view is that the Holy Spirit and the church. So the Holy Spirit is the restrainer. And, and God, will, God and the Holy Spirit is using the church. And once the rapture happens, the church is gone, then the man of lawlessness will come. That's a pre-tribulational rapture view. I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, because then they wouldn't be alarmed. So I don't think it's that. And really saying the Holy Spirit is moved out of the way sounds really weird to me. Um, God being moved out of the way. You don't really move God out of the way. So that, that could be true. And I could see some merits to that. Because he and what? John uses that language. Jesus uses that language of referring to the Holy Spirit sometimes as, a, as an it and sometimes as he. So that does fit. Uh, and the Holy Spirit does restrain evil in our, in our own lives, right? In our church, let alone in, in this culture and the cultures of the world. Now, the fifth view, which I think, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because really it's not um, super important for the final application. Um, but Michael the Archangel is another view. Michael the Archangel. This is the one I slightly prefer. I might lean to, towards Holy Spirit secondly, but I think Michael the Archangel. Now, that's not typical. It's not typical for us in our Christian culture in America to think about angels. So that just sounds way out of left field. But uh, other generations and other Christians in other parts of the world, they are very aware of the spiritual realities around them every day. Church gathering, angels, demons, they're not unaware of the realities that, that are around them. I mean, not that they see it, but they're just aware that it's all around them. Whereas American Christians with science and technology, we tend to belittle the, the spiritual realm. But I think Michael the Archangel is a good guess, and it is a guess, because in Daniel 10, verses 10 through 21, and in Daniel 12, 1 particularly, it says that Michael will rise up or arise. Some people take that as removed, and then the end will come. So in Daniel 12, 1, you can look at that. And that fits. Again, it's not, nothing's a perfect fit, or else there would be no debate. But I think it might be Michael. But the point here is that the man of lawlessness is, is restrained. The Antichrist is restrained. He's not coming out yet. Because either the Archangel Michael or the Holy Spirit or the government is holding him back or Satan even until the right time. So he's restrained for now, so it's not the end. So don't be alarmed. Instead, be thoughtfully engaged. Be thoughtfully engaged in your world. Be thoughtfully engaged in the church. Be thoughtfully engaged in the neighborhood. Be thoughtful about what's going on in our world as you disciple and gospelize and do good works to love our neighbors as you love yourself. Don't check your brain at the door and say, I don't need to worry about what's going on in the world. I just need to worry about myself. No, be thoughtfully engaged. Why? Why should we be thoughtfully engaged? Because of verse 7 through 12, really. Look at verse 7. And this is the point. My point, what's my point? Point number three is a lawlessness works now. So here's why you need to be thoughtfully engaged, because lawlessness is working right now. Look at verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is what? See it there in verse 7? The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Right now in 2020, right now when Paul's writing in about 51 or 53 AD, whenever Paul's writing in the 50s to the Thessalonians, the, the mystery of lawlessness is working right now. Not in the future, already now. Okay? Um, but, the now, but the one now restraining will do so until he's out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. So what do we learn here? The mystery of lawlessness is working now, Lawlessness is working in cultures right now, in the world right now, and it's preparing the way for the man of lawlessness. The mystery of lawlessness working now is preparing the way for the future coming of the man of lawlessness. It's preparing the way. Now we learned in verse 8 that um, this, this man of lawlessness who's going to be very powerful and influential in the world. Uh, Paul just gives a side note here just to remind Christians what's really... Um, What's the real fear? It says, The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. In other words, this great, mighty Antichrist is going to dominate the world in, in large measure, and Jesus is going to come. And how's he going to destroy him? With what? What does it say? How will he destroy him? With the what? With the breath of his mouth. Big, bad enemy, stronger than any Christian, stronger than any church. Jesus comes and goes, and he falls down. He's done. I mean, that, this great, powerful Antichrist is nothing to Jesus. Like an ant crawling on this pulpit that I just, you know, killed with my finger. Just no effort at all. No, no, no resistance at all. Just easy, done. That's the man of lawlessness. He will be destroyed by Christ. And so the good news is that Christ is the victor. Christ is the king. 
So if you're not a Christian, let me just briefly tell you why you need to trust in Jesus. You need to trust in Jesus because he is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he will win in the end. No one will stop him. He'll defeat Satan, he defeats, he defeats sin, and he, he defeats death. He defeated Satan, sin, and death by dying on the cross for sinners and rising from the dead. In doing that, Jesus has defeated, he's taken away sin from God's people. He's taken away Satan's one weapon against God's people. He rose from the dead, and now he's, he's pouring out God's grace on God's people because all humans are sinners. God made all humans, all of us, you and me, he made us all, and we're all sinners against God, rebel, uh, rebelled against God, and we deserve death. But because Christ died to defeat Satan, sin, and death, we can now have victory. We can now have life. We can now have forgiveness. We can now be on Christ's side. We can be united to Jesus by faith and repentance such that we have the victory with Christ. Because let me tell you, in the end, there is no contest. We already know who is king of kings, who's lord of lords, who's going to win. Christ versus antichrist, Christ wins easily with the breath of his mouth. Just exhaling, he destroys his enemy. So let me invite you, if you're not a Christian, to lay down your weapons of war, to lay down your rebellion, to lay down your resistance to Jesus. Jesus is a king who's saying, come to me. I don't want to destroy you. I don't want you to be on the wrong side. I died for you and rose for you if you will repent from your sins and trust in me. So if you're not a Christian, come to Jesus who died for sinners like you and me and rose from the dead. All right, let's move on to what you see here. Go to verse um, 9. The coming of the lost one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles and signs and wonders. So he's going to be convincing. I mean, he's going to do miracles. He's going to have good speech. He's going to talk well. He's going to, he's going to do miracles and signs and wonders. He's going to maybe heal the sick, raise the dead, perhaps. Who knows? But he's going to be powerful, and it's going to be demonstrable what he's doing. And all of that is empowered by who? All these miracles and signs and wonders. Who is it empowered by? Who's working? Satan, right? It's all based in verse 9 according, based on Satan's working. And with every kind of wicked deception among those who are perishing. So notice here, um, it's working among those who are perishing. They perish. Now, why do they perish? Let's, we're going to kind of close on this point and think about this. Why do they perish? Look at verse 10. Here's the problem. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. Why are they going to die? Why are they going to be damned and condemned? They did not accept what? The love of the truth. And so they're not safe from God's wrath. They're not safe from God's judgment because they rejected the love of the truth. That's weird. It doesn't say they rejected the truth. It doesn't say they don't receive the truth. It doesn't say that God's giving truth and they're rejecting God's gifts of truth. What are they not receiving? The what? The love of the truth. What is God giving then? He's giving love of the truth. God is not just giving you information. God has made you a whole being, not just a mind. He's given you a heart. He's given you feelings. There's things you love in this world. And all those things you love in this world are echoes of God's goodness and truth. And he gives you his truth to get the fullness of that love. But when we reject Jesus and we reject the gospel and we reject God's righteousness, we're not just rejecting truth. We are rejecting the love of the truth. And that's why they are not saved. Look at verse 12. All will be condemned. Those who did not believe the truth. So it said earlier, not loving the truth, not receiving love of the truth. Here they're not believing the truth. But what do they delight in? But they delighted, what's their problem? They delighted in what? Unrighteousness. They delighted in unrighteousness. Here's the problem. They don't love truth. They love unrighteousness. Love and delight is the problem. It's not a mind problem. It's not a thought problem primarily. It's a heart problem. It's a desire problem. It's a delighting problem. It's a what you take pleasure in problem. It's wanting the good things of God that are, that are, that are found even in echoes of unrighteousness. Sin is enticing because there's some goodness in there, right? Whether it's a job and idolizing money. Money's a good tool. Idolizing a relationship. Relationships are good. Idolizing marriage or, or sexual pleasure or idolizing um, power and influence. Anything that you idolize and worship, there is something good in there that God designed for your good and for his glory. It's not that it's completely wrong. But we wanted that without God. 
So we don't want the full truth that informs that gift. We just want the gift minus God, which in the end actually takes away the goodness. So here's the problem. If you, uh, here, here's how error creeps in. If you're going to be swayed by false teaching, if BBC is going to be swayed by false teaching, if you're not a Christian and you're listening and you want to know how can I know the truth versus error, here's, here's the point. Love of evil gives birth to error. Love of unrighteousness, loving sin, is the mother of error. In other words, you don't think bad thoughts first and then commit error, generally speaking. I mean, then believe error, generally speaking. It's your love of sin, your love of disobedience, your love of, our love of compromising with God. That's what makes us have false thoughts. So be careful, brothers and sisters, especially a church like ours, when you have a confession of faith and we're really clear on what we teach. Oh, yeah, I believe that. I'll sign the confession of faith. Great. But do you love the truth? Do you love the God of the truth? Or do you love that confession of faith while you love making compromises in your life and concealing sin from God and others? That's what's going to lead you to error before we change our doctrinal statement to say Jesus is not God or something like that. And this love of unrighteousness, this delighting in unrighteousness, has a consequence from God. Look at verse 11. For this reason, because they do not accept the love of the truth, because they delight in unrighteousness, for this reason, what does God do? What's God's reactionary act of judgment? God sends them a what? A strong delusion so that they will believe the lie. So you want to love sin? You want to love error? You want to reject love of the truth? God says, fine. In the end, I will send a strong spirit, a, a strong spirit, or yeah, no, a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie. God will send a delusion so that they believe error. They believe the lie that the Antichrist is God, or the Antichrist is the best thing in the world, and that Jesus is not. And in that, they will be damned. It says so that in the end they will be condemned. They will believe a strong delusion. I have to ask, there's a theological problem here a little bit, right? How can a holy and loving and truth-loving God send a delusion so that people believe a lie? How can God do that? Any answers from you guys who are here right now? On Zoom, you can put it in the chat right now while you're watching live if you're watching. But would you guys, any, hey, that's one way we could interact on Zoom during the message, but... Um, you guys have any guesses? How can a holy God who loves truth send a strong delusion and not be unholy? How is God not sinning by sending a strong delusion so that people believe a lie? Because they already received it. Okay. So he's just saying, fine, if you want to do it, then... Yeah, and I, I think, that, I think that, that's where we should start because that's where the text is. So I think you're absolutely right. Because they already reject God, God is not doing it as you had no chance... But you are rejecting the love of the truth. And so as a consequence, as a reaction, God is sending a strong delusion. I think that's right. I think that's part of it. God is doing it as a reaction, so it's not unfair. Um, but, but God is a God of truth, and he hates lies. Like, why is he sending a delusion so that they believe the lie? I have a story here from 1 Kings 22 that I want to tell you briefly as to illustrate God's point here, or at least the righteousness of God in, in a situation like this. And some of you heard me tell this story before. It's an important one, and it raises all the right theological questions and answers. Ahab, King Ahab was an evil king. Jehoshaphat of the north. Jehoshaphat was the king of the south. This is 1 Kings 22. Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat was the king of the south. Now, they were going to go to war together, and Jehoshaphat said, can we ask a prophet first? Can we get a word from Yahweh before we go? So they're sitting on their thrones, and then all these prophets come in, and they say, you're going to win. You guys are going to be the best. You're going to kill them. You guys, are, you guys got this. You guys can come back with a smashing success and victory and great glory. And then King Jehoshaphat, Ahab rejects Yahweh and the prophets. Then Jehoshaphat from the south says, is there a prophet of Yahweh, though? Like, I, I mean, I see all these prophets. That's cool. But can we get a prophet of Yahweh, like just one? And Ahab's like, I do know one, but... He never prophesies anything good about me. So I don't want to bring him in. And Jehoshaphat's like, dude, don't say that, man. Come on. Like, let's just get it. Like, just bring him in. It's going to be fine. And Ahab's like, all right, fine. So they call in Micaiah, the prophet. And before Micaiah comes in, they instruct him, hey, when you come into court 
and you see these kings, you better prophesy something good because all, all these other people prophesied something good. And Micaiah looks at the guy and says, I'm only going to say what Yahweh tells me to say. Okay, so he comes in, and then Ahab says, we're going to war. Are we going to win or lose? And Micaiah says, you guys are going to win the war. You guys are going to be the best. Yay, yay, you're going to win. And then Ahab is saying, tell me the truth. Tell me what you really think. Don't lie to me. Tell me what you really think God says. And then Micaiah gets serious and says, I saw all of Israel scattered, and you are going to be destroyed, and you're going to die, essentially. Essentially, you're going to die in this battle. This is the word of the Lord, or something like that, you know. And then Ahab says, see, told you. All he does is negative prophecies. And then Ahab says, lock this guy up, and when I come back, we'll figure out what to do with him. And as they start to take Micaiah away in custody, Micaiah says, if you come back, then God hasn't spoken through me, because you're going to die. And he walks away as he's, as he's going away. And that's the end of it. Oh, wait, no, that's, I'm sorry, that's not, that's, not, that's not the end of it. Sorry, I missed the big point. Or like a, a big a piece of it. So as he says that, that, um, that you're going to die, um, Micaiah says, not only that, I'll tell you something else God told me. I saw a vision of God in heaven, and he says to all the spirits around him, who will go and send a lying spirit to Ahab? And then one, one spirit said, I'll go. And God says, what are you going to do? I'm going to go deceive all the prophets to make him think that, that to believe a lie, and then he'll die, and I'll destroy him. And so, um, and then God says to that spirit, go, and you will succeed. So Micaiah is there telling Ahab about the divine count, you know, like about this God, about God speaking to all these spirits. And so, so Micaiah is even saying, the reason why these guys are all saying you're going to die, I mean, you're going to win, is because God sent a lying spirit to tell them that, and that's why they're telling you this. And that's when the king says, lock him up, put him away. And he says, well, if you're going to come back, you're not going to come back because you're going to die. And Ahab goes to war, and guess what? He dies. God sent a delusional spirit, a spirit of delusion, to deceive the prophets so that Ahab would believe a lie and die. Is God a liar? No. Why not? This story is so good because it, it helps us explain it. Did God, why not? What did God do to Ahab through Micaiah? What did God tell Ahab through Micaiah about those other prophets? That they're what? That those other prophets are going to what? That they're going to lie. So in other words, even in Micaiah's prophecy, he's telling Ahab the truth. That they're lying. And yet, Ahab still goes to war and dies. Why? He doesn't love the truth. It's not that God doesn't tell you the truth. It's not that God is trying to trick you. It just shows how hard-headed we are. How deceived our world is. That God will even tell you he's bringing a spirit of delusion. And you still say, I still believe the delusion. God is not a liar who's trying to trick people. God loves the truth, but he will judge you if you reject the truth. He will judge you if you love unrighteousness. He will judge you if you continue to compromise and pretend to follow Jesus when you're really rejecting Jesus. God will not be mocked. That's why Revelation says, let the filthy go on being filthy, because that's what they're going to do. Let the righteous go on being righteous, because you'll do what you love. So God is calling you to reject your love of sin. Christian or non-Christian, to reject your love of compromise, to reject your love of concealing and being okay with sin, and to love the truth, to repent, to, to embrace the truth and say, God, I love your truth, even if it means I have to confess sin and look embarrassed for a little bit, because you will give me life in your ways. That's the call. The call here is not to master future events. The main call of this passage is to love the truth and to hate sin and to be scared of sin. And to not look at other non-Christians and say, why are they sinning? To look at your own heart and say, why am I compromising? Why am I okay with sin? Do I not love the truth? God gives us enough truth, so we're, we alone are to blame when we reject his truth. Now, judgment is coming at the end when that man of lawlessness comes, but the mystery of lawlessness is already here. That means deception is already in the churches. It's already in BBC. It's already in other churches. We don't have to wait for the man of lawlessness to start checking our church and be like, is, is anti-Christian influences influencing our church? It already is. Every church. 
It's not just out there. It's not just in the future. The mystery is working right now. In BBC, in other churches, in your heart and mind, we, that's why we need to keep checking each other. That's why we need to keep discipling each other. And notice, this is why we don't primarily, we focus on, we do teach the Bible, right? I'm teaching for an hour and five minutes here. Um, we do focus on the Bible. We do teach theology. But theology is not enough. When, when Christ gave the Great Commission, he said, go therefore and disciple all nations and just teach them a lot of theology. Teaching them to obey. Observe all I command. We teach obedience. Why? Why do we teach obedience? Because obedience, enthusiasm in obedience measures, the, the, um, measures your holy love. Let me say that again. Enthusiasm in obedience measures your holy love. When you're not enthusiastically obeying God, it's a barometer on how your love for holiness, where it is. And so we disciple people in our church, not just to know theology and sign our confession statement, we rebuke each other for sin. We call each other to repent. We call each other to holiness. And we walk with each other patiently and help each other repent and grow in Christ. Because we're not just about information. We're about the heart through information. We're about teaching people to observe everything Christ commanded. So if you're discouraged, God is calling you out of delusion with his words and truth. If you're encouraged by this, keep trusting Jesus. But let me just tell the church, church family, expect lawlessness in, this, in churches. Expect, expect worldliness in the churches. What is worldliness? Worldliness is anything, this is what David Well, well says, worldliness is that, is that sentiment of thought that makes um, sin seem normal and righteousness seems strange. That's worldliness. When sin seems normal and feels normal and righteousness feels and seems strange. Is that not happening in our own lives at different points and in our culture and in our, in our churches? It is. So expect worldliness, discern lawlessness today, and fight error on two sides, not just one. If you're only fighting error on one side, that's Satan's way of getting you to make the opposite error. So you could fight against legalism of obey, obey, obey with no heart. And you could fight against license. Just all about the heart. Don't worry about obeying God's commands as long as you love God. You, you see how there's two different errors there? License and legalism. Um, and that's true of, a lot, of, of, all, of many things, maybe all things, that there's errors on two sides. And if you're going to be a discerning Christian, you can't just fight error on one side. You have to think of the opposite error and make sure you guard against both. And we do that together as a church family. So let's disciple each other. Let's disciple our non-Christian neighbors because they are under the lawlessness, right? We need to gospelize them and tell them the truth and love them and give them the love of the truth so that they might be saved. So to conclude, main goal, stand firm in the teaching of future events. Or we could even say it this way. Love the teaching of future events. Delight in the teaching of future events so that Christ is glorified in you and you in him. What is the teaching? Jesus comes after the apostasy and the man of lawlessness, after the apostasy and the antichrist. God speaks to us. And thirdly, lawlessness is at work now. So how do you prepare for the end of the world? How do you fight indifference? How do you fight ignorance? How do you fight anxiety? Here's one, maybe one, one, one thing for you to, to really take away for practical um, direction. Ask yourself, how does the coming of the anti-Messiah, Antichrist, and the Christ, how does the coming of the anti-Messiah and the Messiah direct my current trial and situation? Because I know Jesus is coming soon and the Antichrist is coming before that, what, what does that mean for how I'm living right now? So I was fighting with temptation this week and I was thinking about the passage and thinking as I was tempted towards a lustful thought and to dwell on it like how does the fact that Christ coming right now and the Antichrist coming before that, how does that inform what I'm doing right now? Oh, well, if I love the truth, am I loving the truth or am I actually giving into the lawlessness right now and just making a, a, a little compromise? It's not a big deal. I don't need to tell anyone. I don't need to confess to my brothers or my wife about these things. Um, no, we, we have to, we have to um, think about how the coming of Christ in the future affects us now. If you don't, you will drift into temptation and sin, and maybe even the delusion. But if you keep asking yourself how the future events, how the coming of Christ, and the coming of the Antichrist, and the delusion that comes with him, if you keep asking yourself how that affects right now, you will sober up 
when you kind of get in a drunken glaze, of, uh, you know, malaise of sin. You'll sober up quicker, you'll refocus more quick or quickly, and you'll grow in standing firm in Christ. Lawlessness is already here. The lawless one is coming. Then Jesus will come. So let's pray and live. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, take these words and hide them in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Help us to draw near to you. Help us to love the truth. Forgive us for loving unrighteousness and delighting in unrighteousness and being comfortable with compromise. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us and guard us by your word. Shape us by the coming of Christ. And we pray with the saints all around the world, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.